and welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. Today, our senior pastor, Perry Duggar, will deliver a message regarding Judas's foretold betrayal of his Messiah. You can follow along with this message in Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and John 18. And if all that is too much for you to flip back and forth to, you can always purchase the companion book for this series, The Life of Jesus, here in our bookstore for $5. You can also find our weekly message outline and many other resources on our website at brookwoodchurch.org or on our Brookwood app. Do you stand in awe of Christ? Just hold, just hold, the, hold the applause. I want you to stay in the moment. Sometimes applause deflects from the moment. Stay in the moment. Do you stand in awe of Christ? How sweet is His grace to you? Is it amazing to you? Let that sink in to your mind and to your heart. And is it reflected in your life? We continue our series, The Life of Jesus. And we've We've studied this series, and you say, well, it's been a long time coming. Because remember, we're not saved by embracing some facts, believing some theology. We're saved by relationship with a person. Jesus didn't say, here are the facts you must agree to to be saved. He said, I'm the way. And I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. So we've spent this period of time, over a year now, learning Jesus. Because he's the core of our faith. Not some facts of theology or some verses of the scripture. The man Jesus of Nazareth. Today's message is entitled, Betrayal. Take out your message guide, and your outline is on the front two panels. And so we're going to consider the betrayal of Jesus that led to his arrest, that led to his death. And you know who betrayed him, what was his name? His name is infamous. You hear the name appear in movies or, or sometimes television shows where that has no bearing or no relevance for, uh, no reference to faith, but he's just known as the, the great traitor, the, the worst betrayer, infamous for that. And especially because he had been with Jesus for more than three years on a daily basis. He was a, a close friend, an intimate friend. We'll also see that Jesus wasn't a victim of treach- treachery. And we see that particularly in this theme verse that's on top of your outline. It's taken from Matthew 26, verse 53. Or do you think that I cannot call on my Father? And he will provide me more than 12 legions of angels. That's 72,000. How then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say this must happen this way? It must happen this way. Jesus' arrest occurred on Thursday evening. During the Feast of Unleavened Bread following the Passover meal. 
And so we turn to reading 187. And we pick it up there on page 223. After Jesus said these things, meaning the things he had said during the the meal and afterward, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Ravine. It it would be essentially a dry creek bed called a wadi, W-A-D-I is is how they referred to them. And it would have water during the winter rainy season, but it wouldn't have water year round. So there was a ravine several hundred feet below the Temple Mount. So they walked off the Temple Mount through the city of Jerusalem and out the Eastern Gate. Where there was a garden, they crossed the ravine and there was a garden into which he and his disciples entered. The garden was called Gethsemane. You know what kind of garden it was? You know the Bible never says it was an olive grove. That's one of those things we assume. But the word Gethsemane means olive press. And it was found at the base of the Mount of Olives. So it's a reasonable conclusion that it was an olive grove. And there are olive groves there today. In fact, the trunk of some are over a thousand years old. They say that some of the roots may be at two thousand years old. So it likely was an olive grove. But remember, when, when we read the scripture, let's read it closely. Let's beware of a lot of assumptions that come from us, from culture, even our culture, even Christian culture. Let's be sure that we're reading and seeing what the Bible says. And we're not believing the additions that come from various sources. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with disciples. Part of the grove has a wall around it today. It may have had a wall then. They, they likely went there with permission. It was privately owned. And in fact, the disciples slept there each night during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Luke 21, 17. Now remember, Judas left during the meal. He was exposed by Jesus as a betrayer, but the other disciples didn't pick up on it. So he left during the meal into the darkness, John 13, 30 tells us, and he went directly to the chief priest with whom he had already made an agreement to betray Jesus and they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And so he left to tell them the time is right. He knew that after this meal, they would very likely follow their customary practice of crossing over into the garden where they would stay for the night. In this message, I want us to make some betrayal observations. I want us to consider the different individuals and groups of people that were involved in this arrest and see what we can learn about the nature of those people. First was the mob, and the mob was manipulated. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, it's interesting that he's referred to as one of the 12 there, isn't he? 
And it's in all the gospels. He's referred to as one of the 12, although he's clearly the betrayer. And what that does, I think, is it makes his, his action even more despicable, even more evil because he was counted as one of Jesus' closest followers. With him was a large mob, a detachment of soldiers and some temple police with swords and clubs, with lanterns, torches, and weapons who were sent by the chief priests and elders of the people. Now, you could see if your eyes are able to read those uh, superscripts that this, remember, is a harmony. Now, if, you're, if you've just joined the church recently and you've got it in the book, what's in brackets tells you it's coming from another location, not from Matthew. This is coming from John 18, for example. The soldiers were Roman. The temple police, or in some places they're called temple guards, were Jewish. And these guards were given some limited authority by the Romans who were in control to enforce Jewish religious and societal laws. Remember, the Jewish religion also controlled the society. But this group would have been limited in what kind of arms they could bear. So the clubs are likely held by the Jewish guards and the swords by the Roman soldiers. These religious leaders who arranged this arrest hated Jesus. But why did they hate him? We've been looking at this. Give me some answers. Why did they hate him so? you got to get louder than that. He didn't want to be a military leader. What would you say over here? They thought he would take over. Both of those are true. See, the people were flocking to him. And they were remarking that Jesus spoke with authority, not like them. And they saw him as a threat to their position as experts in all religious matters. So these priests and elders not only wanted Jesus detained or questioned or driven out of town, they wanted him put to death because Jesus' influence, you see, extended throughout the country. Most of his preaching had been done in the northern part, in Galilee, in fact. And the Jews were not allowed to carry out capital punishment. Only the Romans could. So the, the Jewish leaders needed Roman involvement in this arrest and ultimate trial. The Jewish leaders brought charges of blasphemy against Jesus. And they asserted that he had dishonored God with his statements. But they knew it was false. The Romans weren't concerned about blasphemy. They didn't care about that at all. So the chief priests and the elders manipulated the Romans in order to get these guards, armed guards, and to get the Roman interest, they told the governor that Jesus was an insurrectionist. 
See, they told their own people he's a blasphemer. But the Romans didn't care about blasphemy because they didn't care about the Jewish faith. But they told the Roman governor that he's going to lead an uprising and raise an army to battle you, which got their interest. Now, the military unit of soldiers was likely one of the smaller groupings, probably called a, a, a mandible. It was probably about 200 soldiers. You say, well, that sounds like a lot in a garden. Well, it does. But they wanted to ensure there would be no escape. But it's very likely that these Roman soldiers and these Jewish guards had no personal hostility toward Jesus. In fact, Roman guards who'd been sent out to arrest him before came back very impressed with what he had to say. I mean, um, temple guards were very impressed with what he had to say. So why were the Roman soldiers there? Why were the temple guards there? They had no personal opposition. You see, well, they were doing what they were told, right? They were carrying out their duties. They were arresting the Son of God and would lead to him being put to death just following orders. Where do your opinions of Jesus come from? Are your thoughts about him and about faith from the scripture or from friends at school or from people at work? Are your girlfriends, boyfriends, spouses telling you what to think, say, and do regarding Jesus? Or have you discovered his identity for yourself? We're each responsible for our own actions, aren't we? These Roman soldiers were. These temple guards were. You sure wouldn't want to be one who was just caught up in the crowd, would you? Another key participant in the Savior's arrest was the betrayer, and the betrayer was bitter toward Jesus. His betrayer had given them a sign or a signal. The one I kiss, he's the one, arrest him and get him securely away. So Judas emerged from this mob of religious leaders and soldiers. And it says, so he went right up to Jesus and said, greetings, rabbi. Now, a lot of times, and kissed him. A lot of times we, we think of rabbi as teacher, but that's really not a literal translation. A rabbis are teachers, but literally the word rabbi means Master. And it's a title of honor, of dignity. So I want you to imagine Judas has just called this man Jesus master and kissed him. 
What was the tone that he used? Was it one of honest affection? Or was it one of mocking resentment? Because he's about to defeat him. Why? Why was Judas so resentful, so bitter, so angry? Did you give that any thought? Well, it appears, and this is all observation and speculation, only little tidbits here and there of evidence about how Judas got like he, where he was. I think he was disappointed that Jesus didn't attempt to overthrow the oppressive Romans or even displace these powerful Jewish religious leaders because the Jewish leaders dominated and ridiculed the common people of Israel. And so Judas joined this group believing that this man truly is the Messiah or perhaps, early on he said perhaps he was, but he was thinking that he was headed for a position of prestige, a position of power. Something that would provide him social status and, and financial reward. So he was frustrated. He was angered. After three years following and serving this man, Judas was still living in poverty, sleeping outside, eating whatever someone gave him. He said, well, how do you know all that? Because he had to have those opinions to justify stealing from these men he called his friends. John 12, 6. Judas had traveled throughout the country with this man. He, he, he had thought would rule Israel. But Jesus has done nothing to take over any position of power or even influence. And so what's Judas feeling? You know how you expect someone to do something and they disappoint you? You ever had that happen? And I'm talking about disappoint you grievously. It may be that your expectations aren't even correct and they're not ones that they expressed you should have toward them. But you had them. And when they didn't live up to your expectations, how did you feel? You beginning to feel that? Yes, disappointed. But disappointment isn't an interesting. Inter very quickly turns into frustration, frustration to anger, anger to bitterness. And so by the time Judas steps up to kiss Jesus, he disdains, he despises Jesus as weak, as insignificant, as even pitiful. See, you can't mistreat someone that you don't assign some kind of negative nature. Have you noticed that? 
You have to attribute something to them on some basis. Either something they did to you or perhaps it's even some, someone they are. And so Judas had to hold these opinions of Jesus to be able to do this terrible, tragic thing he was doing. And Jesus spoke to him. Friend, why have you come? Of course, Jesus knew why he came. But have you noticed that, that a lot of times Jesus will ask you questions? What are you doing? What are you saying? Why do you feel this way? Who is this person you're dating? Why aren't you doing the work you've been assigned? Why are you treating your parents in this way? It's amazing how these questions, and we think, oh, and we just try to dismiss them. But is it the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, asking you a question? Not because He doesn't know, but because you don't know. You're operating without thinking. Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And of course, a kiss was a symbol of respect, even affection. And so Judas is using a symbol of respect and affection as a sign of treachery, which again reveals the depth of his bitterness, the level of his contempt. You know, it's interesting in this culture, sometimes a a pupil would kiss a teacher or a master, but because of the difference in position, the kiss always had to be initiated by the master. So for Judas to walk up and kiss Jesus was presumptive, even insulting. It's like when you know someone dislikes you and you press on in and smile right in their face. You might kiss them, but that's less common in our culture. That's exactly what was happening here. It was a sneering kiss, a presumptuous kiss. Now you say, but Judas was seduced by Satan. He was, Luke 22, 3. Perhaps even possessed by Satan by now. But remember, Satan can only reside where we open the door for him to come in. And so it was Judas's own unbelief, greed, and ambition that opened him up to Satan's influence. Some of you right now, there may be a boiling hatred that's rising in you, a resentment. Have you opened the door to Satan? Have you justified an ugly attitude? Have you decided you've been mistreated and you're allowing this resentment to grow? That's the hand of Satan at work. People today betray Jesus in a similar way. When they they follow him for self-serving reasons, they have an expectation of something he will provide, and then their circumstances don't improve. Perhaps even something tragic happens in their lives. Perhaps they lose someone that they love, and so they feel abandoned by him. And respond angrily 
bitterly to the point that they reject him and sometimes even start influencing other people to reject as well. The person you know who is the angriest toward God, instead of trying to convince them of God, ask them why they feel so that way. There is always a personal disappointment at root. It's not an academic decision. Behind so-called academics, there will always be a personal disappointment. Does this make sense to you? Ask that question. Why do you hate God so much? Why do you believe Jesus was no one special? And there will be a personal reason. Are you harboring resentment? Sometimes we call ourselves Christians, we still come to church, but there's this resentment that's buried down in there. Something happened. You've struggled physically, you've struggled emotionally. Your marriage broke up, your health failed, you lost this person that you loved, that loved you. And we don't even sometimes know it's there or if we sense it now and then we quickly deny it. But there's, there's a bit of resentment in there. It's a seed that Satan would love for it to grow and bear fruit. Take this time and say, is there, is there, is there a core of seed of resentment in me, Christ, toward you? Could be based on any struggle that you have and you, you won't say it You hardly articulate it to yourself, but you think, I've been let down by him. Another party to the betrayal, Peter, was impulsive. Verse 50. Then they came up to him, took hold of Jesus, and arrested him. When those around him saw what was going to happen, they asked, Lord, should we strike with the sword? How many swords did the the disciples have? Say it. At least. (laughs) There was, they had two. Remember that? They had two. Luke 22, 38. And one of them decided to use him. It wasn't likely to be a long battle sword. It's more like a dagger in all likelihood. But who used his? Were you surprised? Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his ear. The slave's name was Malchus. Peter just reacted impulsively. He flew into action. And he was, he was trying to prevent Jesus' arrest, but he wasn't thinking about much. There was at least 200 soldiers, plus temple guards. They were armed with Roman swords, perhaps spears, and he had a little dagger. You ever gone into a fight with a little dagger? Not very wise. So he struck the person closest to him. Do you think he intended to cut off Malchus's ear? 
Who thinks he intended to cut off his ear? What did he intend to do? Cut off his head. Or strike a deadly blow at least. So what happened? Malchus ducked. Y'all like y'all wanted some spiritual answer, like an angel came in or something. No. He was swinging that sword. And Malchus ducked, and it probably glanced off the side of his head and lopped off an ear. Laid on the ground, bleeding. But it's interesting, although this event is recorded in all four Gospels, only John records Peter's name. And it may be because, John, because Peter by then was dead. And so there was no chance of reprisal by the Romans against Peter. Peter's impulsiveness could have started a battle and the disciples would have lost and all been arrested or killed. Jesus certainly wanted to prevent that. But, but Peter wasn't a thinking man. You know any of those? He was an impulsive man. He, he, was, he was motivated by affection for Jesus. That part was good, but he, was, he really was foolish in his actions. Then Jesus told him, put your sword back in its place because all who take up the sword will perish by a sword. The battle that Jesus came to wage was spiritual. It would not be won with physical weapons. Faith cannot be advanced by force. You see this with ISIS trying to advance Islam by force, by the sword. They can't change a soul. They can dominate people into bowing and even praying. They can't convert a soul. And we don't believe that's a valid faith. But even Christianity will not be advanced by force. So the person you're trying to argue with, you're not going to persuade them. Romans 2, 4 says the kindness of God leads men to repentance. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4 says we, we're humans and we live in a human world, but we don't wage war as humans wage war. We use God's weapons, spiritual weapons. James 1.20 says that the, the anger of man or woman will not advance the righteousness of God. Do you believe that? Then why do we fly into attack mode like Peter? If we believe faith won't be advanced by force. See, Jesus' assignment included his arrest and his death. He said, should I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And Jesus even assured Peter that he was being arrested voluntarily. voluntarily. Or do you not think that I, can't, I cannot call on my Father and he will provide me at once more than 12 legions of angels, 72,000. And one angel could destroy the whole Roman army. 
How then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Jesus had told his disciples that he would be betrayed, that he would suffer at the hands of the religious leaders, that he would have to die, that he would be resurrected. He told them on numerous occasions that it would happen to carry out God's plan, that he would fulfill prophecy. Old Testament told us that we had a suffering Savior, a dying Messiah. But I want you all to hear this clearly, and I'm speaking to myself too. The Lord's battles are won in his power, not our efforts. You know what? People can build a human church. Nice structure, good musicians, fair speaking. But it won't be God's church at all. Only God's spirit can build God's church. I'm not saying you can't get a lot of humans gathered together if what you offer is good enough quality. I'm just saying there won't be any eternal impact. Well, what is our part? What do you think our part is? Come on. What's your part? Pray. If you believe what I'm teaching you, how much are you praying for that child who's lost, for that cousin who's addicted? How much are you praying and how much are you arguing, manipulating, struggling, fussing? How much are you praying? Because the amount of our prayer equals the amount of our belief that God does everything that's eternal. Is that fair? And yet, how often do we resort to manipulation, side discussions, a little talking here, a little talking there? Lots of talking, lots of arguing, lots of scheming, lots of manipulating, not much praying. Is that fair? Not much praying. Now, I'm not saying, I, I mean, I am guilty of this too. My daughter told me this week, we were discussing some, an issue, a thorny issue, and she said, let's don't do anything, let's pray. Let's pray. Because you know what, I, I'm afraid I can resemble Peter far too much. Give me a sword. But I'll cut off two ears. <laughs> but nothing eternal occurs. Do you believe that? But see, see, we we fall quickly to force and action, don't we? When we ought to be falling to our knees. We scream and shout. And we ought to be crying out to God. We need to pray a whole lot more and react a whole lot less, don't we? Here's what Jesus did in the moment. And touching his ear, he healed him. Come on now, I want you to be honest right now. 
This is honest. Did y'all hear? Y'all know that word? How many of you would have healed this ear? Come on, how many? There must be some nice people. I think Leanne would have healed the ear. I wouldn't have healed the ear. But Jesus showed his nature, and his nature didn't change in crisis. He was a healer. He was a lover even of his enemies, even when his life was threatened. A final betrayal observation is the followers were afraid. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, temple police, and the elders who had come for him, Have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I used to sit teaching in the temple complex and you didn't arrest me. But this is your hour, the dominion of darkness. See, God had pulled back the protection because God ordained the arrest. And God allowed Jesus' enemies to apprehend him. On several occasions, Jesus just slipped through the crowd when they were trying to arrest him or kill him or apprehend him somehow. Jesus exposed the deceptive behavior of these Jewish leaders, though they already knew that their charges were false. They knew he didn't commit blasphemy. They knew he wasn't plotting against Roman rule. They fabricated Jesus' blasphemy to justify his arrest. But do you think their concern was for God? Their concern wasn't for the honor of God. It was for the honor of self. How many of us really grow indignant when God is disgraced? Versus when we're slightly offended. When's the last time you really became indignant over the dishonor of God's name versus a little slight of your name? When evil people are determined to have their way, they are not concerned about truth, justice, rightness, or legality. And so you say, why, don't, why doesn't he do what's right? Why don't they say what's true? They're not interested in any of that because they've decided that their cause is just even if their methods aren't. And their cause justifies whatever methods they use. These religious leaders, their desires and their opinions were the only authority they needed to act But all this happened so that the prophetic scriptures would be fulfilled. God used evil men to fulfill his holy will. Acts 2, 23. Then the detachment of soldiers, the captain, and the Jewish temple police arrested Jesus and tied him up. Then all the disciples deserted him and ran away. These Religious leaders had no authority to arrest anyone but Jesus. The the soldiers didn't have orders to. The temple guards had no interest in, in arresting any disciples. And yet, 
the disciples ran, though no one chased. Under pressure, their concern was for themselves rather than for Jesus. And they were not prepared to stand and even perhaps suffer with him. Are we? Now a certain young man having a linen cloth wrapped around his naked body was following him. People lived on top of the Mount of Olives. They do today. There's apartment buildings and stuff on top of the Mount of Olives. It's sort of odd to imagine that, isn't it? But there's all kinds of things up on top of the Mount of Olives. Perhaps this man lived by, nearby. And he, he heard all these people talking. He heard the noise of hundreds of soldiers tramping through the garden. He was probably asleep. I guess he usually slept with nothing between him and God. So he got up and wrapped his bed covering around himself and went outside to see what in the world is going on. And they caught hold of him. You know, just suspicious. Who's this guy coming in here? Soldiers, I'm sure, would be a little nervous of an attack. But he left the linen cloth behind and he ran away naked. So why is that crazy thing in the, in the story? Well, one, it, it's just proof of an eyewitness recorded it. But the truth for us is everyone ran away. Even this curious onlooker. They all fled. They left Jesus alone. By now, he was bound in ropes in the cruel hands of his adversaries. What do you do under pressure? Have you ever run from possible embarrassment or ridicule or perhaps mistreatment because of your association with Jesus Christ? Have you fled? And the people that you fled may not even known you were a Christian, but you heard the conversation turn and maybe someone else was being pointed out and you slid out of the room. And it left you naked, exposed in weakness and fear. We can trust God. But see, each of us individually has to decide that, don't we? I will trust God. I won't run. I won't hide. I won't flee. I will stand. Trust God to protect. If you suffer harm, trust God to to provide. Pray for his presence. Ask for his intervention in your problem. I'm sure he will show up. Counselors come to the front. The counselors will be here to pray with you, to talk to you, to anoint with oil if you have a physical or emotional ailment.
And as I close this service, we need to take a vote on our ministry plan. Um, it's been out for several weeks. David talked through it a couple of weeks ago. We had a meeting for questions and answers. Um, and so today we will confirm this as our ministry plan for next year by a vote. And here's how you vote. All in favor of accepting this as our ministry plan for the coming year, stand. All opposed, remain seated, and we will come back and get you before we lock up tonight. <laughs> Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, help us to stand with strength and conviction and not flee and expose ourselves and our lack of faith. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for coming. Here at Brookwood Church, our desire is to assist you in pursuing a relationship with Jesus so that you can experience transformed life. If you have questions about this message or you would like to request prayer, we encourage you to visit our website at brookwoodchurch.org forward slash get help. You can also find our message archives on our website or on our Brookwood app. Thank you so much for listening and have a blessed day.